Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at. I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great because I have a fantastic guest. And the name of this lady, she's an author, is Rebecca Pittman. And um, just, I, I love her bio because uh, she's definitely, besides writing about the paranormal, my favorite subject, She uh, her background is very varied. She was raised by a mom who owned a modeling agency and at an early age introduced her to the fashion industry. And she's made a living as a professional muralist, a motivational speaker, TV talk show host, and an author. She majored in journalism and art in college. Um, she writes about historic places with paranormal activity, which is a passion of hers. Mine too. Um, <laughs> and she wanted to understand the haunting, so she researched them uh, extensively. She spent nights there, what she calls in shadowed bedrooms, and interviewed the owners, the staff, customers, to create the most comprehensive book she could, which I'm a firm believer of the R word called research. Uh, she's been featured on Coast to Coast AM with George Nuri. She's married and is a proud mom and grandmother and lives in the beautiful foothills of the Colorado Rockies where she boats, golfs, and has adventures. I love it. <laughs> How are you doing today, Rebecca? Well, my head's not going to fit out the door now, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> you know what? Let me tell you something. Um, it's, it's, I know it's weird sometimes to hear other people speak about you, but it's, it's the truth, you know, and it's, and let me, you know, I love paranormal investigations and stories, whether it's a ghost story, you know, like a fictionalized or the true stuff, but I'm always, I love the, the research part of it, which it sounds like this is what you've done as far as, um, wanting for, uh, in other words, it adds validation. Like when I read it and I hear that somebody researched, you know, this is the background or, yeah, that story does, it, it is, uh, there's some truth to it. It's like, okay, this is really scary now. <laughs> At least to me it is. Well, yeah, when you have that kind of validation and support, um, it's, it's 
you know, it's priceless. And I'm never happier than when I'm up to my eyebrows in dusty newspaper archives and, you know, looking at old maps and playing Nancy Drew, basically. Yeah, yes. I know exactly what you mean. It's been an amazing way to make a living, and I'm very grateful. Yes, especially when you have those aha moments, like, I found it. Oh, Um, yeah. Um, With the new Lizzie Borden book that came out, um, I actually read 5,000 pages of trial transcripts, police reports, coroner reports. Oh, my God. um, Three times each. So it's my research to me is my favorite part. And it is those aha moments where it's it's worth it. And it is so cool. <laughs> well, and you know, and, and this is the thing sometimes, especially people don't realize um, that when you start researching, let's say, and that's a great example, that thing about Lizzie Borden. I mean, obviously, they spoke English and everything. But sometimes the way they wrote back then, you have to like really yeah. read it to comprehend it well as to what they're saying because you know as time goes on people the vocabulary changes sentence structure etc so believe i'm sure that research it's it's engrossing but at the same time it can consume a lot of your time well especially when you're dealing with different dialects i mean yes. going back to lizzie bridget was an irish immigrant although she had a very good command of the english language but you, you pick up their, their, the brogue and some of the things they would say, and I'd have to go look it up. <laughs> well, no, I believe it. That's what I mean, that, that you know, there's there's uh, different, sometimes slang or just words that are common at that time, but that have gone, that have faded out, that you look at and you think, okay, like you said, I need to look this up just to make sure I know what I'm reading. But before we get to that, Rebecca, what I would love to ask you is, did you ever have your own paranormal experience, which is what got you interested in this field? Uh, not not that got me interested in it. My mother had, you mentioned my mother, she mm-hmm. um, taught modeling before I was born, but she had psychic ability that at an early age I witnessed, and I realized then there's a lot more out there than I know of, and I've always been envious that she had that. Um, she would become our party trick, if you will, when we were, my sister and I were in high school and college. Uh, if we had a party, they'd say, go get your mom. <laughs> and we'd bring her in, and she could look at you without ever meeting you and tell you what your bedroom looked like, oh, wow. uh, what which parent you were closer to. Um, she even let one lady, one was doing a play, and we had the rap cast party at my house, and my mother was visiting she actually told a woman in the play, just from looking at her, that your husband's cheating on you, oh and you God. just found out yesterday, and none of us in the play knew anything about it. This woman was so upbeat and happy that all of our jaws dropped, and she burst out crying and said it was true. Oh, so wow. my mom knew when her mother died and there were no cell phones back then. We were driving to her brother's house, my uncle. I was six. My sister was five. She suddenly pulled off the road, burst out crying, and said, my mother just died. Oh, my so God. So when you're that little, that's scary. And I'm going, what? So we drove what? the final few minutes to her brother's house, and he came out the door crying and said, sis, mom just died. Wow. So that's 
started it for me. I Let me tell you something. That is a paranormal experience. It is that that you know a lot of people think of the paranormal as just seeing a ghost or hearing a ghost, but that that mm-hmm. when you think of the word paranormal, that is a paranormal experience because basically you were seeing your mother. She, yeah, she was your mom, but yeah. seeing her display all these moments of intuition and being psychic, like you said, when you knew absolutely there was no way that she would have mm-hmm. access to that information. Yeah, wow. that was, I mean, I'm 63 now, so <laughs> if I was six, you know, there weren't cell phones back then. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And, you know, not the internet or, you know, because nowadays information is out like sometimes within 30 seconds, it's like it's it's already hit the, you know, some site. But, you know, especially when it's like you said, a personal nature and something that hadn't been confided in anybody. So I can't imagine... <laughs> I imagine your friends would have loved to talk to your mom or maybe we're scared like, oh, my God, <laughs> what is she? Well, I'll tell you what, growing up, we didn't get away with a lot. I bet. <laughs> I bet. It must have been like, do we really want to do this? Yeah. We're going to get busted. <laughs> it's no use hiding the report card. She's going to know anyway. So, wow. yeah, it was. But it wasn't until I, I lived 30 minutes from the Stanley Hotel. Okay. Um, and I went up there every you know, quite, twice a month. And when I went on the ghost tours and started actually witnessing these things happening, that's when I really got into it. And that was my first book. So okay. once you've had something happen and you've ruled out all the other explanations and the only one left is it's paranormal, exactly. you can't close that door again. You can't exactly. go back to where you were. Absolutely not. You can't. As much as you would like to, when you go through all, when you go through that checklist of plausible explanations mm-hmm. for it, and none of them fit, then you're only left yeah. with one alternative, which is, okay, this is paranormal, supernatural in nature, what, whatever the case. I can imagine going to the Stanley. Wow. I've, I've always had, I've always had intentions to go there, but always my timing is bad and I'm afraid, you know, up there going up there, I know you have to go at the right time of the year. Otherwise, I don't know if the snow and everything makes it difficult to get there. But, um, and also another thing, which uh, it seems that you've done is that you interview people, uh, I guess who either work or give the tours. And sometimes a lot of, they have their own personal ghostly experiences that sometimes they don't talk about, but I think it's when you're there. In other words, that you work there that you're able to witness a lot of things right well the first thing i do is get permission from the owner of the venue which is very important to me uh i want them to be proud of the book in fact they get to read it before it goes to print to make sure i've represented their venue the way they'd like it to be and because of that they open their archives to me they show me photographs that other people haven't seen i have all of this amazing um, documentation and diaries and things that is such a privilege. Wow, and, absolutely. Um, and then, yes, I do. I interview um, the people who work there. I interview guests quite a, quite a lot. Of, almost every place I write about, you can spend the night. So okay. I get guest reports from their overnight um, experiences. And, and um, But, yes, being there myself, I always stay at least a couple of nights. Uh, the Stanley, I actually got to stay there a week. Wow. And that's a really great up close and personal. The The guides get to know you. They open up to you. And witnessing things while you're on the tours. Mm-hmm. Can I give you a quick example? Yes. Um, 
The head tour guide at uh, the Stanley Hotel is Mary Orton. Her nickname's Scary Mary. I adore her. <laughs> um, the, the spirit children at the hotel gravitate toward her. And I was on a tour uh, with, with her and oh, at least eight other people. And we paused on a landing, and she said, oh, the kids are here, meaning this was a little bit of a skeptic at, at that time. Okay. And she said, don't be shy. And she, all of a sudden, she wore this black pencil polyester black skirt, fairly straight. All of a sudden, these little handprints were pressed into her dress. What? And I'm like, I'm like six inches away from her. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't mean to embarrass her. I said, Mary, I'm writing a book. So can I just feel your skirt? And she said, yeah. So I ran my finger along the hem looking for wires, looking for anything. There was nothing. And you could see all five fingers of two different little hands, wow. and it was cold. It was so cold were those hands pressed in. And there was no way that skirt was rigged. And then later on, um, she actually had one of the little kids roll a marble. Wow. The group down the hallway that was completely level. A guy was there with an EMF reader. It went off the charts. I'll tell you, the hair was standing up on my arm. <laughs> I bet. And do they have, do they know? I, and I. this is the thing about hotels. I mean, there's so many coming and goings that sometimes I imagine maybe it's hard to pinpoint the identity unless it was somebody that lived or worked there. But have they been able to identify any of who these children are? Oh, yeah, she has names for all of them, Matthew and Kathleen. Um, during when the, when the hotel opened in 1909, the children and the maids would stay on the fourth floor. Okay. This was the Gilded Age. The parents, mm -hmm. you know, were all dressed up and had activities, so the kids stayed primarily on the fourth floor. Right. And there, this was a time of tuberculosis. This was a time where chill, a lot more children died from, you know, fever and things like that. So a couple of the kids did die during that time period and they talked to her so she knows their names um she teases with them and says matthew let go of that lady's leg <laughs> boy <laughs> oh boy i can't imagine <laughs> but that that hotel inspired stephen king to write the shining so the amount of people up there is off the charts um to see the place and go on the tours and have you ever come across, because as you know, certain locations, they get a reputation or certain ghosts are the ones that are known to either be manifest there. Have you ever come to one of these locations where during the research, you find the identity of a new ghost or a new something new that wasn't the norm that everybody knows about? No. I really haven't. Um, I've had things happen to me while I was there that I didn't understand what research, and then I went, oh, my gosh, because then I understood who the person was that the haunting related to. But at the time it happened to me, I didn't. Right, it and the reason why I ask this is that, you know, sometimes certain places, they get like the usual, you know, uh, this ghost or the identity. Sometimes it's right. rooted in reality and sometimes it's just been, uh, you know, it's just kind of like an urban retelling of maybe an original story. And I'm thinking, right. 
if you had ever, while doing research, you kind of stumble across the real person or something that happened there that could explain, oh, this is who this really is. So sometimes in the retelling, a lot is lost, like the truth, <laughs> especially no, if we're talking I, 100 I years totally back. I agree with you. Um, well, as an, as a, for instance, Limp Mansion in St. Louis, yes. to me, is one of the most haunted places in the world. Yes. And I had more stuff back-to-back happen to me there while I was researching the book. And um, I spent a few nights there. But anyway, on one of the nights, my sister, who lives in St. Louis, and her son, who was 21, wanted to know if they could spend the night with me. And by now, I'm tired of being there alone in these places, and I'm going, yes, yes, you can. (laughs) So she slept in the bed with me. They have huge suites at Lent Mansion. It's amazing. And her son slept on the couch across from us. At 5.10 in the morning, on a plane to Louisiana, and if you're like me, if you've got an early flight, you don't sleep. And I I woke up early. I'm staring at the clock. It's 10 after 5 in the morning, all of a sudden, right outside our door in the hallway, we're on the second floor, the staff doesn't even come in until 10 o'clock, I hear bang, bang, whoo, just really loud, and I'm not talking muffled gunshots, I'm talking, I sprung up out of bed, I look over, my sister's still asleep, but my nephew is raising up on his elbow, and I went, Bo, did you hear those gunshots? He said, no, but I heard a dog. I said, you did? He goes, yeah, a really big one. So I think the gunshots woke him up. Uh-huh. And then he heard the dog. Okay. And I'm telling you, Marlene, that was one of the most chilling moments I've ever had. And at the time, I didn't get it. Okay. I knew that the bedroom I was sleeping in was where one of the limps had killed himself. Actually, four members of the family died from gunshot. Um, Three of them suicide. The other, I think, was murdered. But anyway, I knew I was sleeping in the bedroom of where William Limp, the father, had killed himself. That didn't explain the two gunshots and a dog. And it wasn't until two months later, when I was really researching the book, that I came across Charles Limp, who was the last, of the limps to live in the mansion. He'd become a recluse with rheumatoid arthritis, and he had a dog that was old. And one night, Charles just decided life wasn't worth living. He was turning 70. He was in constant pain. So he shot his dog first and then himself. And you talk about an aha moment. I about died. yes. See, that's what I mean. It occurred to me, something's wrong here. It's backwards. If he shot the dog first, wouldn't you have heard bark, then bang, bang? I heard bang, bang, bark. It Uh. didn't make sense to me. And I still don't know the complete answer to that. I do know what I heard was a residual haunting, a playback of something that happened in that mansion. But the sequence still bothers me. And (laughs) Does that make sense? But see, that's exactly what I mean, Rebecca, that yes, you witnessed it. And of course, the Lemp Mansion is known such a very unlucky family. But um, like you said, after you did the research, you realized, why am I hearing a dog bark? Even though I know I understand what you're saying as far as a sequence, like would you think first a dog would bark and then you would hear the shots? Exactly. But at the same time, it's one of those things that you were there and... In other words, it, it, 
it wasn't like, oh, I researched it. No, it was, I heard this. So I know what I heard. And then later on is when you actually put the pieces together because you come across that exactly. information. Yep. That not only did he commit suicide, he killed his animal, his, the dog. Yeah. He actually left, a, he left two suicide notes. One was in case I'm found dead, don't blame it on anybody but me. And he left a second note for the companions that stayed in the carriage house behind the mansion that had, you know, they would bring him his dinner. He left them a note saying, please take care of the dog, bury it. So it's just, ugh. There was, there's just, in that, at that same place at Lent Mansion the night before while I was sleeping up in one of the attic rooms, and I had the whole place to myself that night. Wow. Um, something kicked the bed and sat on my feet. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's why I was really happy to have my sister stay with me the next night. It was like, yes, yes, come up, bring all your friends. Sure. <laughs> the more the merrier, as long as something else decides to sit on the bed on my feet, I'll have company. Um, oh my gosh, I love that place though. The atmosphere is so thick when you walk in that door. It's amazing. Do you think that all the ones that are there that are causing the activity are the members of the Lemp family? Yes, I do. Okay. And let me tell yes, you, I do. Considering how wealthy they became because, you know, they be, there were beer, uh, you know, manufacturer and they were, mm-hmm. um, it's incredibly bad luck. It was like it didn't stop. Uh, and one of the things I've noticed also is I believe that they there's a I don't know what is it caves or something underneath the house right they have some type of um... exactly and I've oh, noticed a lot of these so places that have either caverns or mines or something mm-hmm. there's always it, the, the haunting always goes up a notch Salem is built on top of underground pirate tunnels okay I mean, yes, the energy of place is so huge. Um, you, are you familiar with the stone tape theory? I'm sorry. Yes, I do. I am. Well, you know that those castles built out of quartz and limestone actually work like receivers and radio exactly. transmitters. They amplify it. Yep. And they play back that energy, and that's why you see the monk cross the grounds in the exact same space and disappear in the exact same place. It's a loop being played back by the quartz, just like a radio receiver and transmitter. Yes. And a lot of the Stanley Hotel has it was built on a tunnel system. Um, it's it ha- they actually have done research on the minerals underneath it. Um, ley lines are amazing. Um, yes. Most of the stuff that happened in Salem runs along one ley line. Uh, down you know Essex. Street. I had not heard that about Salem and the ley lines. I mean, I'm very familiar with ley lines and with dowsing. As a matter of fact, I've done some of myself, but I didn't know that they uh, there was something with ley lines in Salem. I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. And actually points right up to Gallows Hill where they have found that that is where they were hung. Wow. Uh, the witches. And you, oh, you're just, I love you. It's so nice to talk to, oh, you know, someone you. who. Oh, well, believe you, me, you, we're. we're... <laughs> We're <laughs> my favorite subject. And the thing is, um, like I said, I, I'd love to talk to somebody who's done the research because as much research as I've done on other things, you, there's always, which I was about to ask you when you told me all that research you had done about Lizzie Borden. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, I've read some of the stuff with Lizzie Borden and, you know, beyond what is put out there for every show. And um, it makes you wonder. 
I mean, there's so much, uh, like one time I was reading and, and, um, you know, where they, they specify where, you know, she was, uh, she was always in church and it's, it seemed like yeah. her, her social, uh, contacts were in church and she was, uh, they had her back until she was declared innocent. Then everybody turned their back on her. And I was like, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the thing though, and I won't stretch this out, but, um, the book is 828 pages. That shows you how much went into it. There's wow. a lot of photographs but i i found new evidence which i'm really proud of um in fact five different pieces of new evidence including someone um the week of the murder that the police never found and i found him and i'm really excited about that wow but anyway um lizzie didn't do anything that didn't benefit her and her church and her charity work was so that she could hobnob with the rich women from the hill, from the mansions oh. on the hill. She wanted so badly to get into that society. That was the only reason she was doing this charity work, was to try to get into that circle. Okay. And it worked for her. She got invited on the Grand Tour of Europe with some of the young women from that, that inner circle. But there was a story that at one time um, she was with the flower mission, flower and gift mission, and somebody upset her, and she took her flowers back. <laughs> okay. So um, it's, it's a sociopath like I've never seen before, and it's, it's a chilling story and one you can't look away from. It's just amazing. But um, I'm very excited because the people who own the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast are now opening Maplecroft, her mansion, um, the end oh. of this next month. And let me ask you something, Rebecca. One of the things I've always wondered about is that, and I don't know if this is accurate, you tell me that, of course, she was acquitted, but it kind of everybody didn't have anything to do with her. Because, of course, even though awesome. she had inherited all this money, she was persona non grata, which always makes you think, why didn't she move away? Why did she stay there? That's the whole point. That's the stubborn, narcissistic character. It, she wanted to live on that hill with the other rich Bordens for so long. It was like, you're not running me out of town. I've got millions now. I'm buying my house. Not only did she move right in the middle of all of them, which they did not want her up there, to rub it in, her face, in their faces even more, she threw these parties for actresses, which back then, actresses were akin to prostitutes. Oh, yeah. You yeah. didn't do that. And so she threw huge parties. She bought expensive cars, which I think she's one of the first women to get a huge car and drive through town showing it off. And rather than after being acquitted, going into hiding or living. That's a, what you know, I would have thought. Group. You would think it was like, okay, I'm getting my millions. I'm getting out of town. Well, she didn't. It was like, you can't, I mean, oh my gosh, stubborn doesn't even, and her poor sister that moved into the mansion with her only wanted to be quiet. She wanted it all to go away, but not Lizzie. <laughs> so what, I, I understand something that after, like towards the end, her sister moved away. Do you think that's what, something happened between them? Oh Yeah. In fact, Emma confessed to um, to her, their, um, I don't know if it, she call it a priest, pastor. Uh -huh. She said, I, it got to where I could no longer stay. And it was so bad that he agreed with her that she needed to move out. 
And they didn't speak again for the rest of their lives. And the interesting thing is they died nine days apart. And Emma was 10 years older than Lizzie, but they died nine days apart. Interesting. It's just a strange, strange story. And the thing is, it's almost like you said, they didn't speak after that. It wasn't like, you know how sometimes family will have a falling out, but then they get over it, even if it takes a couple of years. But if they never spoke, it was like, wow. Yeah, it was a long, it was a long, long time. Do you, but, do you believe that there was any truth? And I know that, and that there was any truth that, uh, you know, there was any molestation going on as far as incest? No. Nope. And I know the new movie's coming out, um, and everybody's excited about it. And, you know, it's it's going to have its own take on a relationship between Lizzie and Bridget, and that's fine. I mean, everyone has, you know, their theories, and they right. put them forward, including me. I mean, I'm not the end-all, say-all, but um, no, I don't. And I don't think Bridget particularly cared for Lizzie. I think she saw her as very lazy. Mm-hmm. During trial testimony, Lizzie tried to get Bridget out of the house the day of the murders by telling her there was a sale of dress goods at Sargent's for eight cents a yard, and Bridget didn't bite. She said, I'm going to have some, but right now I'm going to go up and lie down. I don't feel well. Well, during the trial testimony, she admitted Emma would tell her about sales, but Lizzie never did. Which was unusual, and she must have thought, why is she giving me this information? Yeah. Lizzie was all about Lizzie. She was very selfish, very lazy. She slept in till nine every morning. She hardly did anything that she didn't want to do. And so, I, you know, the movie will be interesting, and I know people are excited to see it, and so am I. But you know it's what? This is, take. But see, this is the thing, and that's why I brought that up. It's like, okay, I, well, I'm looking at it from my point of view. I'd rather know what the real truth was versus mm-hmm. okay that let's say she went ahead and she killed her uh her dad and the stepmom she killed them mm-hmm. but it's still just as gruesome even if there was no type of molestation to justify it, for example because that's also kind of like a justification she's still mm-hmm. either a psychopath a sociopath whatever it did, one thing doesn't take away from the other but i would rather know the truth or or what it looks like which is what you just said based on what your research that yeah mm-hmm. maybe um she was uh, lazy and selfish, and uh, maybe her relationship wasn't the best with her dad and with her stepmom, it doesn't sound like, and she just decided to take an axe to them because she didn't want to wait for them to die. Actually, it's, it was a lot more um, immediate. She found out there was a land deal going on behind her back that was going to cost her her inheritance. Oh, my and God. The See? Murders, they were supposed yeah, the day of the murders, um, someone was supposed to pick up her stepmother, Abby, in secret, take her to the bank to sign the deal. And Lizzie knew about it. So she killed Abby before the person could come pick her up. And I don't believe she was going to take a hatchet to her father, but he came home early and she was trapped. She was trying to get Bridget to leave and get out of there and Bridget wouldn't go. And she was trapped. And when she tried again and Bridget wouldn't leave and went upstairs to take a nap, she killed her father. That is such an interesting so, theory. I love that. I, I love that. And I, your book, oh, it's, i, I got to read I that book. book of it. It's not a theory. It's what happened. 
But during the trial, they didn't know that because it was a secret scheme going on, and they didn't know it, and there was no will. They couldn't find a will. So there went the motive that anybody could come up with for why she killed him, which is partly why she got acquitted. If there had been a will or something to point to it, but it was uncharacteristic of Andrew, but he didn't have one. And nobody knew about the land scheme going on until later and. It's it's fascinating. It really is. So in other words, basically she got her inheritance just because of the fact that she was her and her sister were the only surviving heir, so Exactly. Wow. Yep. And along the lines that she because sometimes I always think did she ever have any type of uh suitors, anybody that wanted to marry her? Uh because I know back then that was the thing that I know. She was 32 when the murders happened, yeah. and Emma was 42. They were, yeah, by that time that you're considered a spinster. Yes. No, there's nothing to show that anybody ever got seriously interested in her. There was something about her personality that was very hard. Um, she was also uh, very mood swings as far as the diaries of some of her friends would say. Went over to see Lizzie today. She was you know, morbid, sad, depressed, blue. It, it was, that's the image you got of her all the time. She and was a, a witness, difficult person. Um, yeah, a witness at the drugstore when she went in trying to buy prussic acid the day before the murders um, described her voice as guttural, that it wasn't pleasing. And she was kind of a big-boned woman, and I just don't think she was the kind of feminine you know that era you were supposed to be the porcelain doll and right so well, it sounds like I she wasn't appealing either in her appearance or her manner is what it sounds like no no she just had that kind of brusque manner to her but i, I i'm gonna i actually missed working on the book when i wrapped it up it was a lot of work but i found i missed it um just all the research it was so fascinating and Rebecca, what about because they were always trying to point out that there was all these other men or relatives in the periphery that they could have been the ones that committed the murder. Uh, but I'm thinking to myself, especially back then, where most of the time things of this type of crime, women were not considered to be likely suspects. I'm thinking if they actually back then went and arrested her instead of looking for a man who you always think of especially back then of being a perpetrator they must have had something really strong to indicate that she was the one that had committed the crime well there was no blood found on her uh even within a 10 minute window of her father being butchered and her yelling up bridget come down someone's killed father uh, but i it doesn't take too long to explain this i call it the tale of three dresses but um, I believe she had a dress on over the dress that she killed Abby in. Um, but anyway, she it was her lies that tripped her up. The day, I mean, right during, right after the murders, when the police showed up to interview her, her she was so inconsistent. And she'd tell them one thing, and then the next minute, no, I wasn't on the top of the stairs. I was in the kitchen. No, I wasn't in the kitchen. I was mending something in my room. And then she said she was out in the barn up in the loft in August during one of the hottest days of the year when the humidity 
looking for lead for a sinker to go fishing. And when the police went out, not only was the barn door locked, when they went to the loft, there were no footprints in an inch deep dust of, of hay dust. There were no footprints. And they said there's no way anybody could have stayed out there for the 15 minutes that she said she was out there. So they just kept catching her in these lies. And then that personality we just talked about, Mm -hmm. not one tear. Her father's laying butchered literally in the floor below her, right underneath her. Um, 11 blow, his face was completely obliterated. His eyeball was cut in half and hanging on his cheek. Not one tear. And she actually took on the police, barked at him, said, how much longer are you going to be? This is making me tired. And then when they mentioned, they said mother, when they mentioned Abby, Abby's literally in the next room with a connecting door. Her body's laying right there. Nothing. And when they said mother, Lizzie blew up and said, she's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Mm. My mother died when I was two. And so... Captain Fleet went downstairs to the marshal, and he goes, there's something wrong with that girl. I don't like this. Exactly. So that's what did her in. If she'd been sitting there crying, falling apart, fluttering the fan, it would have been different. But she that's that stubborn nature we were talking about. It was she wouldn't give in an inch. And it, so anyway, that's what did her in. That's right, they kind of missed the boat where... Your lack of empathy is like a big giant neon red arrow pointing at you. Like, and you hear that a lot with these sociopaths and psychopaths that after they commit a murder or a crime, their lack of, and I know everybody's different, but they're totally oblivious to their behavior being. That's a sociopath. Yeah. Out of, There's no guilt. There's no remorse. It's chilling. And, uh, but yeah, she. Uh, well, she got away with murder and, you know, maybe being alone was what she wanted all along, especially if she, that was her type of personality. Uh, and yeah, I had read somewhere that she did entertain. Um, so it wasn't like she like locked herself away in a closet, but, um, but to be honest, the actress that we, Nance O'Neill, that she threw the parties for, she took advantage of her. Nance was hurting for money, and she befriended Lizzie, who was a good deal older. And she and the other theater people took took huge advantage of her, and she spent a lot of money on them. So it, well, she didn't have any real friends. I'm sure. I mean, besides, well, what you just described her personality was like, and even, and then besides that, she was, and back then people had long memories, <laughs> especially yeah. over something like that. You got away with the murder of your father and your stepmother. Yeah, you might have been acquitted, but public opinion back then held a lot, and nobody wanted to, you know, was, wanted to be associated with you because they didn't want to be included. Well, you have to understand the Bordens were a big name in Salt River. Um, there were a lot of rich, rich, wealthy Bordens living up on the hill. They were some of the founding fathers of Fall River. Wow. And so they did not want to be associated with her. It was a you know, blemish on the Borden name, and that was part of why she was ostracized, even though she was acquitted. The trial, there were four trials that lasted almost a year. I mean, this, this was in the papers as much as Jack the Ripper at the time, and... 
Well, and and uh, it's one of those things. Well, it's like like everything. I, I think also uh, what she had in her favor was that back then they had a hard time believing that a woman could be that exactly. um, not only killing, but the way she killed them. Yeah, that she well, took... but she tried to poison them first, which poisoning is a woman's chosen yes, it is. method. Um, it didn't work. She tried arsenic two days before the murders. They got super sick, threw up all night, but they didn't die. So now she's panicking. She knows they're going to, the bank deal's going down on Thursday. Tuesday night, they don't die. Wednesday, she throws caution to the wind and goes to three different drug stores asking, asking for prussic acid, which is cyanide. It's the most deadly thing you can get your hands on. It'll kill you in two seconds. Nobody give it to her. So now she's out of options, and she has to resort to a hatchet. And here's the thing that's interesting to me, Marlene. I I actually went out and got 1892 hatchets to practice some stuff with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my neighbors moved. But... um, no, seriously, if you think of it, an axe handle gives you that distance between you and your victim. It's not a close-up thing like stabbing. It's not as personal. You've got a little bit of a distance between you and your victim. Plus, you're much likelier to kill them with a blow from a, from a hatchet. Yes. Right, not the and Abby had 18 blows. And so I find that very interesting. But no, what she wanted was to poison them, and it didn't work. Right. It was, yeah, and she did overkill once she got started, but it was like, like you, yeah. well, obviously, like in what you said that, you know, she, that, that the way she got around it was having addresses that absolutely there was the premeditation on her part when it came to killing her stepmom. And, but then things went the way they did. Back. And, they died in August. She was planning this as far back as April. Wow. Um, this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing like people have thought for so long. And I think the overkill was to make it look like a maniac came in. And once she'd done 18 blows to Abby, and her dad came home early and she's trapped, she has to do the same to him. It has to look like the same maniacal person did this although she stopped at 11 with her father. But this woman was smart. She was cold and cunning. And, I mean, she went to 10 months in jail and lived through it and got her millions and went up to her mansion. And from what you're telling me then, because that where, where she had killed her stepmom, she would have had to go through where her father was lying down on the sofa. In other words, she had to deal with him as far as uh, the, her stepmother was killed in the guest room upstairs, which right. is right next to Lizzie's bedroom, and that was an hour and a half before Andrew even came home. Andrew was laying down on a sofa in the sitting room on the main floor. He didn't know Abby was dead. He wow. was, he came home confused because she didn't show up for the bank appointment, and he said, "Where is she?" And Lizzie said she got a note from a sick friend and went out. And he's still not feeling good because they, from the poisoning from two nights before. So he thought, well, she's going to realize she missed the appointment. She'll be back in a minute. And he laid down on the sofa and was falling into a nap when Lizzie killed him. 
He didn't know Abby was dead upstairs. Let me ask you, um, I had heard that there was, not on that property, but close by that, I want to say, I don't want to, it wasn't like a great aunt or a grandmother or somebody that had uh, also killed her children? Oh, next door, um, yes. Um, she, this was before, um, at the time of the murder, the Borden murders, the Kellys now own that house, but it is right next door. It's still standing, which is amazing. But the mother, um, took her kids down into the basement and, um, drowned two of them in the cistern and then slit her own throat with a razor. Wow. And that was right next door. And she is distantly related to Liz. Okay. Because I had heard that only... Maybe there's a ley line under those two houses. Who knows? Because that's, that's not only... I mean, and I and this is the thing that I tell, especially back then, it was very normal for people to die in their homes. People had babies at home and people died at home. It's not yes. like now that, you, you know, you might be in a hospital. So the fact of somebody dying in the house is not a big deal, but those were pretty horrific deaths. Yeah. Uh, Definitely shown a spotlight on everything. What I find interesting is the Borden murders were only four years after Jack the Ripper, and Jack the Ripper made headlines worldwide. I often wondered if the brutality of what he did to his victims may have been in Lizzie's mind at the time, you know. I do find it interesting years after. Well, it's and, and, and you made a very good point because everybody always attributes the you know, all the the way she, the bodies were basically, it went beyond killing them. Mm-hmm. That it was the fury of, but then if you look at it from what you're saying, which makes a lot of sense, where is okay, I need to make this look like a madman, like what you just said. Somebody that's lost their senses or what they called a fiend back then, uh, right. who got in here and not only killed them, but did this just for the sheer act of killing somebody. Well, can I tell you one other thing that's fascinating to me? Um, I believe when she couldn't get the prussic acid, she bought a hatchet. I think she knew she was down to having to do something like that. She wasn't going to use one out of their basement because that would track it back to someone in the house. It had to look like it came in from outside. Right. Um, Abby's autopsy showed gold gilt found in one of the bones in her scalp. Back then, brand new hatchets were edged in gold gilt and so it was a brand new never been owned hatchet well none of the hatchets found that day in the basement were new um and i a year later during the trial somebody found a brand new hatchet up on the roof of a barn behind lizzie's house that when they rubbed the rust away they could still see the gold gilt i think after she killed abby she went in the backyard and tossed it it was a mason's yard behind her where they did stonework. There was a guy cutting wood. I think she thought, oh, they're just going to find a hatchet laying there and keep it or whatever. So she mm-hmm. lobs it over the fence, which again shows me that she wasn't going to kill Andrew. She threw the axe away, the hatchet away. But when he came home early, she stuck having to get one out of their basement. She kills him with it. But to make it look like it wasn't, of the murder weapon. She broke it in half. She had a really weird break on it. 
rolled it in coal dust to look like it was old and dusty and threw the broken parts up in an old box of tools. I mean, that's pretty smart. Yeah, she was. And she did all of that in 10 minutes. Cause, well, that's what I was going to say. She was pretty smart on her feet considering that this was something that she decided to do at the last minute. But, oh, she um, was, you got to give her props. She stayed so cool. And um, other than she couldn't keep her life straight, I, oh my gosh, it's chilling how she handled everything. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, and like I said, she, I think, like, I think the, what really saved her was the fact that regardless, she, she came from a well known, wealthy family and she was a woman. So I think, mm-hmm. and I think I believe what the jury were all men, right? Back then, it, the juries were all men. And... Yes. And they were older. They were father figures that looked out at this girl and they thought, Could my, can I picture my daughter doing something like that? And they couldn't. Yes. It was infeasible for somebody to do something like that. And, and, you know, a Sunday school teacher, a warden, a woman. Exactly. And everything played in her favor. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying that, that I think that otherwise that to to put it mildly, she would have been toast. (laughs) She would have been toast. A lot of it was, it's been compared to the OJ case. It was two people slain using a sharp instrument, uh, shoddy police work, and they both got off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and you know, I don't know if back then they had the the same rules, you know, for double jeopardy, but that's it. Once they try you for murder and they find you innocent, yep, you're off the hook. And I'm but sure she didn't go killing anybody else again. And she's living in her mansion. Her name's in the headlines for stealing from an expensive jewelry store in Rhode Island. Isn't I that... mean, she just couldn't stop. There were unexplained fires that were popping up. Some of her neighbors were robbed. And the really? things that were taken were things she coveted. It's just the most bizarre. It doesn't end at the acquittal. Her time up at Maplecroft is just, it's just, you know, you can't look away. It's amazing. So I was about to say, well, you know, she didn't go killing anybody. But, yeah, she was absolutely, She, you could tell there was a lot of compulsion there. Uh, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I didn't go kill anybody, but I can't help myself. <laughs> wow. Well, but all of that falls under a sociopath and a narcissistic personality. It's it's textbook. Yeah, and that was back then. Well, they they really didn't know what they were looking at, and of course, like like everything. Um, and let me ask you, after that, because I never followed up the did the Bridget did the servant did she, did she stay on with her or did she and go and just leave the family after that? No, she left that night, the night of the murders. That poor girl. You wouldn't believe what she went through that day. In fact, she stood in the corner of the kitchen the whole time, as far away from the doors as she could, and the police were coming and going. She not only got interviewed ad nauseum over and over about what had happened, she's standing only feet from a butchered Andrew that she'd just seen alive 20 minutes before, and they do the autopsy. They put Andrew, they put, they lay Andrew out in the sitting room and cut him open and take his stomach out. They do the same thing to Abby. So they did the autopsy there? Yes, they did them in the house that afternoon, put them in mason jars, seal them and put them on the kitchen table right in front of Bridget's 
So there's there's body parts on the kitchen table. They bring all the hatchets up out of the basement and slam them down on the kitchen table, and she couldn't take it. She went across the street that night to a maid's, and they made her come back Friday night, but after that she never set foot in the house again. Can't blame her. I didn't know that part. I thought, because sometimes you always think, first of all, topsies they threw in somewhere else, or when it's evident what killed them, it's like, okay, well. But I didn't they know that did they had done the autopsy there. At that time. And then later on, they did a, a full autopsy at the receiving vault, vault at the cemetery after the funeral. They cut their heads off, which is horrible. Oh, my God. And Lizzie and Emma didn't know until the trial when they produced the skulls to show how the hatchet fit in. And I can't even imagine. That's when sympathy actually turned toward Lizzie. It was so awful. The sisters did not know that the, their parents' bodies were interred without their heads. Right. So they, they took their heads off and they flushed them and then used yep. to show the, oh, God. See, and sometimes that's when prosecution overplays their hand. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I felt so sorry for Emma. I mean, she went through so much, and Lizzie just verbally abused her from jail, no matter what she did to help her. Uh, I just, I felt very sorry for her. Makes you wonder if Emma ever thought, especially being her sibling, how much she realized or knew about her sister's proclivities as far as being a sociopath. And even afterwards, if she always said, you know, I I, got to keep a low profile because I know that she could do something to me as well. Well, when, when Lizzie was little, they lost their mother when Lizzie was two. And Emma was nine to 10 years older. And, and Emma's promise to her mother when she was dying is that she'd take care of baby Lizzie. Wow. And I think she carried that with her pretty much to her grave. But oh, Emma was very well aware of the tantrum. She actually gave up the big bedroom to Lizzie to calm her down after she got back off the grand tour and didn't want to live in that ugly house anymore and wanted to be up on the hill. So to placate her, Emma switched bedrooms with her. And Emma's is half the size of Lizzie's. I slept in Lizzie's bedroom. So all of them tiptoed around her. I mean, she was explosive. Um, it was it was just a eggshell kind of situation. I can imagine. Yep. Yeah, she wasn't that. Even though she got her way, that she got acquitted, she still, that, that personality was still there. I'm yeah, telling you. it was entitlement. The line I use in the book is Lizzie Borden, a woman with her face pressed up against the window of a world she could not enter. And I believe she killed for it. Wow. Now, I know you also, I've been to the place you wrote another book about, which is the Myrtles. I've been uh-huh. there. Isn't and it pretty? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And um, it's it's got so much history tied into it as far as, well, some of it I think is, uh, they have a little bit of stuff as far as who the ghosts are. But, I mean, somebody's lived there for such a long time that you know there's got to be things going on. I, I When we got there, I went with a friend of mine. I was driving cross country to go to California. I was taking... Um, my my son was stationed out in Coronado Island in the Navy. So I was driving a Jeep out for him. And my friend of mine, she decided to take the road trip with me. And we said, oh, let's stop over here at the Myrtles. 
And when we got there, it was like towards late evening. They had already left. There was nobody staying there except us, but they left us the key. And um, my friend, she's a smoker. So we get there. <laughs> First thing we do, you I don't know, uh, in the back, they have like a courtyard kind of area with right. uh, wrought mm-hmm. iron tables and things. So, And it was like already twilight. It was getting dark. You, you know, like when you look down the hallways, it's already full of shadows and I was sitting there I was pretty tired to be honest with you I had spent the whole day driving and my friends over there puffing happily away on her cigarette and all of a sudden I got this feeling that somebody was looking at me from in the shadow so much so that I turned around and I looked over and I knew there was nobody else there I mean as far as any other guests so like the third time that it happened I told my friend and she looked at me and she 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 was oblivious. <laughs> it's one of those things where, um, so I I understand when people say you get that feeling that somebody's been looking at you. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what they mean. Well, science has proved. I love quantum physics, and I oh I love this that all of us put out an electromagnetic energy field around us that can go up to eight feet. And that's why it's very hard for someone to sneak up on you because you sense that shift in your energy and that's why you'll turn around and look and ghosts are consciousness and energy. And so I don't doubt that you didn't sense that some energy or something had come within that energy field or you felt an impression of consciousness coming at you. It's spooky. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, and I think what one of the things was that when you look back towards, you know where it's coming from. There's enough shadow there that you can't really see into it. I know. Isn't that scary? <laughs> okay, something you could be there, but I just can't see it because it's in I shadow. It's cast in shadow. Yeah, which is worse, if I see the eyes looking at me or if I can't oh. see them? <laughs> well, let, 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 let me tell you the end of that story. We were the only ones and we okay. were... We were staying, um, you know, that there's that staircase. And I don't know if it was different when you were there, but up in the in the hallway that leads to, I think it was the judge's bedroom. They have that yes. big picture where supposedly, you know, it was painted in such a way that the eyes follow you wherever you're. Yes. Okay. So yes. we went it's up there. And, you know, <laughs> we're like, eh, we'll put our stuff away. And, of course, you know, you can hear every little noise. <laughs> And I was fine. I was like, okay. And I was like, I, I didn't, part of me wanted to stay up and just see what would happen. And another part of me was like, I'm so tired. Well, while I'm there, all of a sudden, my friend, when I say she wigged out, she wigged out. She goes, we can't stay here. And I go, what do you mean? We can't stay here. because We can't sleep here. And I go, what? Make a long story short. She wigged out on me so badly that I think I, I think there's I want to say it's a Best Western. Well, this was a few years ago. Oh no! Like two or three miles away. Yes. We had to go and sleep over there. Oh, the next no. morning we came over. I was ready to kill her. I was like, "Are you?" She goes, "Oh no, it's just." And I was like, "Wait a minute! I was the one that had this feeling." I think that beside you know because she had already read this stuff about the myrtles, but I think you know when you're all alone. In this place, yeah. there's no management, no other guests, nobody. Yeah. My and, first night there, I was all by myself. It's pretty scary. Yeah. Well, she had me. I mean, we had each other. It was like, okay. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that there's, I, 
I don't know if what's there is residual uh, as far as there's active. I know there's um, claims of children, uh, things like that. So I don't know I that absolutely there was. And also I would say uh, that area, you know, by the gazebo towards the back, mm -hmm. there's something out there a little bit funky going on. But uh, I, ne I never, I never had got a chance to stay there, and I would have loved to just because of the experience that I had out there when I was sitting in that little courtyard area. It's the hanging moss, the whole you know southern thing, mm -hmm. and, and I used to live in Florida, uh, okay. in Tampa. It took me four years to lose the accent. And the minute I got to Louisiana, it came flooding back. <laughs> but <laughs> y'all yeah. want a coke, you know? So sugar, how you doing? And I just loved being there. But the whole atmosphere, again, in the Myrtle's house and on the grounds, you know, this, this was slaves. This was um, um, the Civil War went through there. Uh -huh. There is so much history on that place. So I would be shocked if there wasn't um, residual hauntings hanging around. There's been so much there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and I'm sure you've, you know, especially when we're talking 100, 150 years ago, a lot of things happened in these places that never really truly got documented, especially right. if it was something people wanted to keep hidden. As in, I tell everybody, you know, sometimes people got killed, knocked off, buried in the back somewhere. And it's not like today uh, where if you, if it was somebody that was unfortunate enough not to have a family to to say, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so anymore, or you were from another part where people didn't know that you were not there. Uh, people would get killed and buried, and sometimes they do show up as part of haunted places, but they have absolutely no connection as far as historical facts to that place. No, absolutely. Anytime you have something that old, a lot of living and dying is going to go on. Well, and and, and that's the, and the, the thing about... Um, and back then as well, you know, especially with the children, like you said, and adults as well, you could die very easily if they had the yellow fever epidemics. I know that in Louisiana. Oh, um, they had a lot. They had the, the, they the had fever back epidemics. Back to back. There was one day um, that the, the yellow fever took 1,000 people wow. in St. Francisville in that area in one day. And I, I can't even imagine. So, yeah, the, it, was, it was very, very difficult. And the young kids were the ones that died the most. If you lived past infancy in that time, you were doing pretty good. Right. No, yeah. I know that, that back then uh, it was very easy to lose a child. If not, you know, uh, during the first few months, there was so many things that could kill a child back then. That that's why you would hear uh, she had 10 children and four survived into adulthood, which is heartbreaking, but that was the norm. Uh, let me well, ask you. There's a what... lot of swampland around there, and that's mosquitoes, and they're the ones oh, that yes. were carrying it. So that the South had a huge problem with this. Yes. Anyway, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and, and it's not, and there, it's not like now that they have pesticides or if things get really out of control they'll have uh planes that uh that you know put out something to kill the mosquitoes and mm -hmm. the heat uh yeah well i've i was born here in miami and grew up so i perfectly understand as far as 
living in a in a very a humid and hot weather what it will do especially to when you're talking about disease as a matter of fact right. i believe that that new orleans the, the if you were a little bit up on the totem pole during the summer you left the city and you went elsewhere that was actually pretty prevalent during the Gilded Age. That the you know people in New York would go to Newport, Rhode Island. That their big mansions on the Cliff Walk, Marble House, and all of them. Everybody during that time would head toward the water where it was cooler. Yeah, the breezes. And let me ask you, as far as the um, the myrtles, I've heard a lot as far as you you know the story of Chloe that that really that really didn't happen that that was that was fictionalized as far as the the story of that she had ended up poisoning two of the girls and the mom and she ended up getting hung did you find anything along those lines in your research whether she did exist or not i did um back then when they kept records of slaves they didn't give any of them names except the foreman Okay. So what you would see, and I, I had a lot of help from LSU Library, and, and people helped me in the research for the slave records because it was really hard to find from clear back then. I did find that Clark Woodruff at the Myrtles Plantation did have a 14-year-old slave girl uh, working in the house, which is the time period and the age that Chloe was supposed to be. Okay. It didn't list her name because they just didn't. It was listed male or female, and that was it, unless you were the foreman. Okay. Um, so to me, that was fairly substantial. I do believe that she did get caught eavesdropping. Back then, it was very normal to cut a part of their body off uh, as retribution. Uh, Tita Moss, actually, the owner of the Myrtles, told me this. They would they would way that it wouldn't hurt their resale value which sounds awful i know it might be a, it might be a pinky mm-hmm. uh in in chloe's instance it was her left ear because she was eavesdropping so they cut her ear off she wore a turban i do believe she made a birthday cake for the family uh to try to get back into their good graces that she did put o- oleander in it thinking it would just make them sick enough, and she'd rush in with the antidote and save the day, and they'd all want to keep her because she was at this point afraid she was going to be sent back out to the field. Right, because I believe there was some type of hark even among the slaves where if you were, plus I imagine life was easier if you were inside the household versus working out in the fields. Oh, huge difference, huge difference. So I don't. They did not die from it um, because it's you know ancestry.com or all these other places. Um, you see that they did live to be older and they didn't all die on that day. One of the girls lived to be 40, but I do believe that part of that story, the the big part of it, was true. I just don't think they died from it, okay. and they did hang her and they threw her little body in the Mississippi River. So in other words, maybe she made them sick and they. They kind of suspected, like, why? Where are these three persons sick? It, it wasn't Clark Woodruff and the family that hung her. It was when she ran running to the other slaves, saying, "Help me! Help me! They're going to kill me." The yes. slaves were afraid of the retribution that was headed their way. They killed her. Right. They hung her. Yeah, they were like, "Okay, if we help her, we're going to get caught up we, and get the same yeah. punishment." And so we'll just, we'll, we'll, oh, yeah, they disassociated themselves in the most extreme way they could think of, yeah. which is to kill her themselves. So many sad stories. 
Oh, you well. and I will have to get together someday and talk about clowns and happy things. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, this is oh. the thing that um, it's some of these ghost stories, like I said, some of them, they just, when you dig a little bit, they just turn out to be urban myths or the actual. But some of the times when you start doing research, you the actual uh, true story is more disturbing than the actual ghost part as to what was going on within the family or in the town or whatever it was that was going on. When you do the research, Mm -hmm. which is, you realize, wow, this is pretty dark, even if it was the good old days, supposedly. Oh, everybody put a good spin on it. But I believe every urban legend has a kernel of truth in there somewhere. It may have been embellished and grown, but I believe it started somewhere. Sure. And, um, and sometimes, uh, and I know in some of the older, uh, back then in the newspapers, when they had no benefit of, let's say, so, so much photography, they were very good in their description of, let's say, for example, if there were murders or anything like that. They were very descriptive. Like, in other words, they wanted oh, to paint absolutely. a word picture. Absolutely. Good job. They... Exactly. And then they do sketches before photography came on board. And that's what's so amusing. If you look at all of the newspaper sketches of Lizzie Borden, they are so different from each other, you'd never recognize her. (laughs) She was insulted by how some of them looked. It was pretty bad. Oh, they... um... I don't know, and, and I want to mention this real quick because you brought it up. I don't know if, you're, if you've seen this, that's this show that's playing out right now. It's called The Alienist. It's based on the book by Caleb Carr. And no, and my sons are teasing me. They said they can't believe I haven't watched that watch, yet. Believe I mean, it or not, it's it. one of those books I've had, and I've never gotten around to reading it. And it's it's been out for a while. The book has, he published it a long while back. But part of it was, when it takes place, of course, is before... They had photography, but not like it was. So one of the characters in there that I'm not going to spoil it for you. He's an artist. What he does is, but he, one of these artists, you know how they sketch real quick. Mm-hmm. And basically that's how they use him. Or the the doctor who's one of the main protagonists in there is using him, even though he's his friend is like, I need you to go to this crime scene before the police get there and they disturb it. And I want you to sketch real quick what you see. Um huh. As far as because this was the only way that they had of sometimes of getting that first impression, but of course, like all things, it the artist interprets it his own way. Some, and I've heard also this where sometimes certain people would say, "Yeah, it's well, not necessarily a crime uh, thing, but where hey, make me look prettier, <laughs> or don't make me look so fat, or <laughs> things of this nature." But um, yeah, back then. Actually, I think one of the uh, attorneys during the Lizzie Borden trial actually was chagrined at how his drawing came out and asked if they'd shave a few pounds off of it. Yeah, it's like everybody, everybody was, <laughs> was a little bit vain back then. It was the early version of Photoshop. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's like, huh, can you get rid of that double chin there? Hello? <laughs> I can't believe how fast they draw, you know, drew back then at the court trials. Oh my gosh, to sketch those detailed scenes of courts, you know, the not only the person on the witness stand, but the stenographer and the prosecutor, as an artist myself, that blows me away that you can do that and do it that quickly. Well, I've also heard that, who was, I think it was certain, I want to say one of the ones that I know that is George Washington. They said that all these busts that they had made of him, mm-hmm. really, they enhanced him 
more than what he really looked like. I mean, obviously it was George Washington, but you know, because of what he had going on with the teeth and everything, right. they they kind of like made didn't make it that obvious what the effect was of what was happening with his teeth or lack thereof or the wooden teeth. So they, yeah, they would do it a lot where we're going to preserve you for posterity, but we'll make you look a little bit better. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I just got permission uh, last week from the Palace of Versailles to write the history and haunting of Versailles. Mm. Uh, it has one, you probably know this, the Petit Trianon has one of the most documented evidences of a time slip. Yes. Where, yeah, the two um, Oxford women saw Marie Antoinette. Yes. So what's interesting is one of the women sketched what she saw was the woman sitting there that she believed to be Marie Antoinette, but her drawing showed Marie's nose not pretty like you saw in all of the paintings of her. And a lot of people dismissed it for that reason. But during the aftermath, they found an original painting of Marie Antoinette that was not used because it showed what she really looked like uh-huh. and it wasn't so pretty. And there was the nose that, that this lady drew. Oh, Isn't fascinating. So, yeah, they dolled them up a lot because this was for posterity. And I'm sure these people that are paying to have their portraits done are going, hey, make me look good. Yeah, of course. I'm... <laughs> it's like <laughs> Just make it look like I went and I had my plastic surgery done. <laughs> <laughs> plastic surgery with your paintbrush. Yes. Well, no, like I said, it was Photoshop in the early stages. I I just think it's interesting. So that's going to be your next project then? This, uh, um, this The History and Haunting of Salem is next. It's coming out in time for Halloween and then Versailles. I'm sorry, what was the title of this one that's coming out for Halloween? All of my books um, are the History and Haunting of okay. series. Yes. So the next one is the History and Haunting of Salem. Oh, okay, okay. And then I'm going to be doing the history and haunting of Versailles. So I'm looking forward to, I've, I've already been researching Salem. I've already been out there. Um, so it's, it's again, it's the research. I just love it. Well, and this is the thing. I've been to Salem, you know, a couple of times myself. And the thing is that once, when you go initially to Salem, there's so much, for lack of a better word, touristy stuff mm-hmm. that it's like, okay, but what's the real history? What's, what was really mm-hmm. going on here? 200 years ago before uh, they wanted to to part of it, you know, for tourists, etc. cetera. Uh, as far as, well, not only was the, the, the trial that went on, uh, uh, it was, and I imagine for back then it was so sensational, but it led to a bunch of people getting executed. And you think of well, that now and you're going, how could this have happened? I know, and the the city, Salem actually has a love-hate relationship with the tourist end of it. They're saying, you guys have taken this tragic, tragic thing where 19 people lost their lives for no reason, and you turned it in to this tourist thing. And I was there in October. They got 600 people through there just in October. Um and that was just one place. So it was not 600, 6,000, I'm sorry, 6,000 people just in the month of October. I believe it. And 
And then you've when the statue of um, Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched was being put in the middle of the town, this, the town did not want it. There was huge protests. They said, here we go again. This is not commercial. This is something tragic. And the statue finally did go up, but they didn't want it. Well, I think it's, let's face it, the ones that are benefiting from this are the merchants. The yes. people are the ones that have all those shops there. And Well, it's like Fall River, to be honest. Um, they're not thrilled about the Lizzie Borden. You know, they're, they're, there's a lot more to the cotton capital industry of the, you know, the world back during Lizzie's time. Uh, there's a lot more things, merchant marines kind of thing that they're mm-hmm. very proud of. And they are not that thrilled about the Lizzie tourism, yet it brings in so much money. And so it's the same dichotomy that you have with Salem. It's this love-hate relationship that it's bringing in all these tourism dollars, and yet it's a blemish on the face of the town history. So what do we do with it? And that's the thing. And I hate to say it, but nine times out of ten, the dollar wins out. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. Yeah. And you're, you're interesting. I have so thoroughly enjoyed this likewise likewise absolutely it has been fantastic i would love for you to come back rebecca when your other oh, this new book for halloween my favorite time of year yeah <laughs> what a surprise even though down here in south florida we don't really have that much of a season i mean it's here it's hot or hotter and uh but yeah october has always been one of my favorite months uh and especially halloween and to be I'm perfectly honest with you, I, I'm kind of sorry that I've seen a decline because I remember when I was a kid, we would have so much fun dressing up and going around and trick, just, and now you don't see that many kids and um, a lot of the festivities I have for children, either dressing up, it's like very, and I, under, it's like um, very controlled. The thing of going around and going from house to house and maybe seeing, you know, seeing another group going down the street. I I remember trick-or-treating all the way until I was a teenager and I, I had a blast and I guess things change well it's funny because the neighborhood I live in I get 240 trick-or-treaters oh god that's great and when I first moved in nobody warned me and I thought oh I've got enough for 50 kids I'm good and I'd open the door and they're coming in waves of 10s and 20s and nobody warned me <laughs> I would love that no, as an adult, oh, I would um, one of my properties. I would uh, I would I would sit there and drape myself, and I would sit real still, and I would put like the dish of candy on my lap, and you see the kids are. But I would be sitting right next to the door, and you see they come up and they're looking. You know when they look at you like, is it real? No, is it's, it not, real? it's yeah. not moving. It's not moving. And I would scare the bejesus out of some of those kids. And then one time, another time, I had my teenage son. He would dress up like, you know, put on the Wolfman mask. And I had a really low overhang because I had one of those carport kind of things. And he would come off those things and talk about, I mean, kids, they grew wings on their feet. But I loved it. That's what I'm saying. I'm really into it. You're responsible for several cardiac arrests. Oh, yeah. Or you would see the little kids, especially the smaller ones, they would stand out by the fence at the entrance and they would look at me and I could hear them telling their mom, no, I don't want to go in there. No. And you see the mom go, it's okay. It's okay. And you would hear a little kid going, No. (laughs) <laughs> and then when I would move my hand or something, 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Halloween is my favorite, one of my favorite holidays, just because of that. Oh, I, I love Halloween. Oh, I love fall in Colorado, where I where I live. I mean, the the seasons. I just I love it. And the, when I was in New England, I got to be out there in October. Like I said, I was in Salem for October. The leaves. Oh, they yes. they they were not lying when they said how gorgeous that is. Oh yes. The change of colors. It's just it's just beautiful. Absolutely. No, it is. I I mean, I was up there a couple of times and it's beautiful. Like I said, I just never had the time to like go beyond the the normal stuff that that the tourists have because like everything it's the real history of what went on there. And um I mean, everybody looks at that what happened where all these teenage girls were accusing all these people and and you think does this doesn't happen in a vacuum. How how did this happen, and how did it get so far? It so. was a perfect storm. It it really was. It was a culmination of a lot of things. But yeah, um, you yeah, to, you'd have to stay in Salem for a while to to really get to the bones of it. I actually got to go in Rebecca Nurse's house, which was a huge privilege. Her farm is still standing. Mm-hmm. I think she was the oldest one to be hung. Wow. And she's actually buried on the property. Her her people came and got her. After they hung them, they just threw them in a ditch. Wow. And her family came up the river and got her body and took it back to the farm to give it a proper burial. Well, I think what was so, a lot of people that when you think about, I mean, besides the fact of what they were doing, was that it didn't matter because your status, if you were accused of being a witch, this was like... These kids were taken at their word, even if you were up to that point, a very respectable member of society there, or as far as God-fearing, which is, I know, what they considered. That was it. They brought you before all these uh, tribunals or the judges or whoever was there, Cotton Mather, all these people, and they questioned you. And let's face it, when you look at these things, I mean, and I'm sure you've found more out in your research, it was very difficult to defend yourself from these accusations. Oh, well, the spectral evidence, yeah. It, finally, after it got too far, they finally said, you can't do this. Well, it was after they they pointed a finger at one of the magistrate's wives, and he went, all right, enough, enough, enough. Yeah, no, no, no. We're no. going to quit now. <laughs> yeah, the next thing you're going to accuse me. Yeah. So but the, the, the first three people that were accused were doing the town a favor to get rid of them. That's mm-hmm. the thing that was interesting. Um, Sarah Osborne and, and Sarah Good, these were outcasts. These were people that the village didn't want anyway. Right. So that's all right. Let's call them a witch. And then it got carried away. And it was this roller coaster that they couldn't stop the momentum. And it went way outside of Salem. They put these girls in a cart and actually took them to other towns to point out witches. These girls were superstars. I didn't know and that. And it's just unfathomable how bad it got. And talk about it. I think I'll leave town for a little while until these girls roll through. Who knows they're going to point the finger at? Yeah, it, it, it's really... But you have to understand, in that era, witchcraft was huge. I mean, in, in England, they were burning them, you know, 300 at a time at the stake. This was not... This was very real. And oh, and yeah. the sermons in church in Salem, it was about the devil is here. The devil, you know, they were, these people believed it. 
So it didn't take much for these girls to convince them that, oh, my gosh, you know, witchcraft is here, the devil is here. And it was a perfect storm of other things, of rivalries going on between neighbors and and Indians. Um, They were still being attacked and butchered by Indians. They Uh lived in constant fear of it. So there was just this pent-up Puritan lifestyle that these girls were the lowest on the totem pole. They, you were not, you didn't speak, you didn't have an opinion, and suddenly they found themselves in the spotlight, and these grown-ups were listening to them. And I think and the worst thing is that, let's face it, if you're being tortured after a while, you'll admit to anything. So oh, yeah. It's like, you could be the most innocent person, but if they're torturing you and you're, they're doing horrible things to you, you'll just say just about anything or admit to anything just so that they'll stop. So. The one that broke my heart when I was in Salem is they showed us what they call a coffin cell. That thing was so small. They actually put you in it, shackled you to the wall, closed the door. You were in utter darkness. And it it was, I can't even, it was about the size of a coffin. Oh you were in God. there for like a year or more. And if you, if you or your family couldn't pay for your food, you didn't get any food. That's... You had to pay for it. And I'll tell you, I have a little bit of claustrophobia. And when I looked at that coffin cell, it got to me. I thought, how in the world could you treat another human being like that? That's my, that's, you, you read my mind right now. You read my mind. I was like, how could somebody do that to another human being? It's like, no matter how religious you are, it's like, what happened to the, the Christian ethics of forget it? They just... I hate to say it, but sometimes when you hear some of these things, you're thinking this was some of these, no matter how fervent you could be in your religious beliefs to see Mm -hmm. another human being suffer like that. The only, I think the only ones that could withstand that would be a psychopath or a sociopath who could say, okay, I'm going to get away with this because I'm being religious because I I couldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I, it's uh, when you see the reality of what those people went through, it's just unbelievable. You know, there's times that I might, you know, I almost feel morbid that I get into the research of places like this, but it is the history, and I, mm-hmm. I find it fascinating. And to me, paranormal is the final frontier. I believe the mind is the final frontier, and ghosts are energy; they're consciousness. Um, when you know we're all 99.9% energy and light yes and we can't kill energy so when we die our spirit which is energy has to go somewhere you can't kill it it takes a different form exactly and ghosts are literally energy that's how they interact with lights and televisions and recorders mm-hmm. and cameras they're energy right and so you know that that hooked me and that's why I write about them. But there's times I stop and think, yeah, I'm writing about something really sad. And yet I can't seem to look away from it because the whole thing to me, psychology is fascinating for one thing, that these people are audacious enough to get away with these things. Right. I think all of us are voyeuristic in that respect. It's peeking through the keyhole at a mind you can't fathom and that they got away with it. Well, and yeah, and this is, well, the, sometimes, and I think that happens to me sometimes, and, but then I always come back to, but this was, this is the truth of what it was. Yes. 
Okay, you might not like it. It might, yeah. you know, open a door to to think of that people back then. Because sometimes when we see some type of aberrant behavior now, we chalk it up to serial killer or somebody that was mentally ill. But back then, mm -hmm. you had the leaders of that community and all the people that were left in good standing going along mm -hmm. with the program and yeah. believing it. Well, they profited by it. Those people that were hung in Salem, their property was confiscated. It went to the judges. It was divvied up. Lives were ruined. Yeah. It was the whole thing was incredibly sad. Um, in it's other words, they had good motive to find that they, yeah, you are a witch and you've got a great farm over there. So. Oh, exactly. That's what I mean. This was a lot of it benefited a lot of people. I'm, I'm very sentimental, um, very, very sentimental. And my, I have four grown sons. And they'll tease me sometimes about that I write about these things because I couldn't watch Saving Private Ryan. I can't watch people being killed for the sake of killing. Mm -hmm. And they'll, I'll mention seeing, wanting to see a movie, and they'll go, Mom, that's not a movie for moms. Although <laughs> <laughs> uh, that means you're not going to be able to handle it, so don't go see it. And yet I'm spending the night in the most haunted places in America and writing about it, so it's a little funny. Oh, it's, yeah, it, but in a way, though, there's still that distance, because let's face it, nowadays, the production of a film is very realistic, especially when it comes to some of these things where people getting killed. Forget slasher. I mean, I love horror films, but when it comes to slasher films, I'm out. I, I To me, there is absolutely no enjoyment in seeing people. You and me both. It's stuff. gore it's like, for the eh. sake of it. That's not scary. It's just gore. No. It is. It is. I to like me, there's the like, there's absolutely no entertainment value as far as I'm concerned for, for that type. But, but like what you were saying, when you go to certain places that are haunted, and even if you've done the research and you come across like ugly history in the sense of, but still there's, there's, I want to say there's a cushion of time where this already happened and it was a long time ago. And, oh, that's a brilliant way to put it, Marlene. It's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm beyond that. You know, it's like, but it's the truth. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, but I believe me, sometimes I have a good enough imagination <laughs> without watching some movies to help me along. So anyway. No, that's back. a brilliant way to put it. It's a, it's a safe cushion of distance. Of course. And yet it is history. And I, I love history. So that to me is, is the hook. And I'm feel, like I said, very humble and grateful that I get to do this and that these owners of these places entrust me with their story. I never take that for granted. Oh, absolutely not, especially um, especially if they have a business built up around it. Um, because some people think, well, it's not that you tell the story, it's what kind of story you're going to tell as far as mm -hmm. either being accurate or giving it the right the, the the right retelling of it even you know even if we're talking let's say a place that's supposed to be haunted uh that i, I want to say let, let's say for example that the lump mansion yeah mm -hmm. it's really scary because it's a big mansion and it's gothic and these poor people but at the end of the day it's very tragic what happened to that family it is, but I'll tell you something. The, the Pointer family that, that brought it back to life, it's actually interesting because I think I mentioned that the Limp family was nine people. 
Well, the Pointer family is nine people, so it's almost like synchronicity has come mm-hmm. back around. And they've brought it back to look exactly like the Beer Baron um, era. It, it's just gorgeous, plus the food is out of this world. So it's not only an inn where you can spend the night, but this right. restaurant that they're known for. And the brewery is still standing right across the street. Really? And, and the limps could actually go down to their basement and through a secret tunnel of caves, like you mentioned, and, and go up into their brewery. They didn't even have to go out onto the street. So it's and after refrigeration came in for the beer, they turned the tunnels into their own playground. They had a swimming pool down there and a theater and a ballroom. Wow. And it's just it's fascinating. That's incredible. See, they don't see that's the thing. A lot of times when for example, that lump uh, mansion, they never talk about those things, which are to personally I think are fascinating that that they were doing all because it, in other words, between the fact of the tragedies that happened, these people were living like you said, the the lifestyle, the Gilded Age, the robber barons, well in this case the beer barons where um you could have all those kind of things built into your house. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, is if, if you read, if you get a chance to read the book, um, you can see the decline. You can see why these people took their lives. I do think there was a strain of melancholy in that family. Okay. But um, it wasn't like all of a sudden these rich people just shot themselves. There were reasons leading up to it. I'm and sure. in that era, it was not uncommon for these wealthy men, if there was a decline in business to shoot themselves during prohibition. They nicknamed it the the Deutsch act because so many German beer brewing millionaires when prohibition hit shot themselves. I did not know that. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah, it was. So it wasn't uncommon during that era to put an end to it with a gun. And you know, these uh, Adolphus Bush, you know, Bush Brewery, he shot himself, left behind his wife and kids. And so it just, it, prohibition was was devastating to these people. And a lot of them didn't think it was going to ever be repealed. And it took quite a while yeah. before it was. But, um, well, no, so the, yeah, it was very sad. And one of the things I've run across that sometimes I feel is like that back then also besides the men shooting themselves, they would do that razor where they would cut their own throats. And I was like, my God, what a horrible way to kill yourself. I know. It's you know, like, if, I, if I go, I just want some nice little sleeping pills. Exactly. Give me some lot of them, please. Just a lot of them. <laughs> Which is what oh, a lot of women awful. did. My son probably just went, Mom. Anyway. <laughs> oh, Rebecca, thank you so much. Uh, what uh, what's your website uh, in case I'm going to put in the credits of the show? But what is your website if somebody wants to visit it? Thank you. It's www.rebeccaf as in Frank Pittman dot com. Okay. Rebeccaf Pittman dot com and Pittman has two T's. Again. Actually, oops. Oh, yeah, I was about Rebecca to say that it's Pittman, Pittman with two T's. It, yeah, but it's Rebecca F. Pittman Books. Oh, okay. My, my bad. Sorry. Okay. okay. So add books on there. But I appreciate so no. much you having me, Marlene. No, this on the contrary, it has been totally my pleasure. And I'm hoping you're going to come back and we can discuss your new book when it comes out. 
because okay, you are a paranormal person after Stanley. my own heart. Well, I'll take you to the Stanley Hotel, so you head over to Colorado. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to take you up on that invitation. Thank you so much, All Rebecca. Right. Thank you, sweetie. Take care. Bye -bye. Good night. Okay. I don't know about you. Oh, what an interesting, interesting lady. Besides being in the paranormal, I'm not kidding you. She's a paranormal person after my own heart because she does the R word. It's called research. And you know what? Um, there's different types of ghost stories. You know, there's the fictional ghost stories, which, you know, from the beginning, it's just made up by the author. You got your folklore, which, like she said, have a little bit of truth, but it's really been built up. And it's, I love to read those, by the way. And, um, or your, in, in more modern times, you've got your urban myths. Same thing. They've been built up. Maybe it's got a little bit of truth to it. But then there's a lot of made up stuff just to make it scarier. But me personally, I love them all. But to me, the ones that I love the most are the ones that are based on fact. All right based on fact, which is that um, whether it's an actual intelligent haunting or if we're talking a residual, the circumstances that there, there, there were real people behind it or real whatever the occurrence was. You know, sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's a town. You know, sometimes you have hauntings that occur in a certain area. And when you do the research into the history, which sometimes is very time consuming, you find out all these things that happened. As a matter of fact, the, the second book I wrote, which is called um, A Lady in the Blue Kimono, uh, I wrote up 12 stories that are all true. And the reason why I wrote that was because doing research for my other books, I came across all these disturbing stories of murder. Some of them saw, some of them never saw that. I said, I'm gonna write a book just about these stories. Because a lot of times when you do walk back, if you're a researcher if or historian, if you do walk back some of these um, haunted locations or haunted houses or whatever, you go back and you find this history that is sometimes a lot more disturbing than what's actually being told as the official haunted story of the ghost. And that's what I found. Uh, you either find that story or you find that right around the same time they had this really horrific murder or something. And of course, that never received publicity because it happened sometimes. Well, in this case, the book that I wrote, mostly they happened between the 1920s to the 1940s. That's why I called them the film noir murders. It was around that time of after World War One, and uh, after, you know, the flappers prohibition and into World War Two, which is where you that's when you start getting into that film noir, that gumshoe, you know, the sexy lady. Everybody's got a dark past. Um, but yeah, uh, and that's what I like. I like the stories that they're true and you find evidence of why, if any of these people would be haunting, that they have good reason. Either because of the circumstances of their deaths or the circumstances of their life, but sometimes you'll get uh, some hauntings, which even if the person did not die under tragic circumstances or by suicide or by being murdered, if you look at their lives, they're really tragic. Where you think, oh, I can see why this person is would stick around, 
because maybe they had a lot of unresolved or um, same thing where you get these personalities and perfect example what she described there with Lizzie Borden um, that kind of personality where they're very narcissistic and they've lived a long time and they become very possessive and then you get the stories of certain houses or certain places being haunted and it looks like the person that's haunting there is the owner or the builder whoever or the patriarch or the somebody or the matriarch a lot of times the matriarch of the family and you think well what happened well they lived a long life and they had but you could tell when you start doing the research as to the circumstances of their life or what kind of people they were you realize wow this was a really domineering or narcissistic compulsive personality that it's almost like you could see where uh that ego thing that we have while we're alive and we have a body it just never stops they just want to stay there because this is their place and they want to control everything and everybody and uh some of them I wouldn't be surprised or don't want to cross over because they're afraid that they they themselves know the truth of all the horrible things they did maybe when they were alive or how they treated other people. So they have two good reasons to stick around. It's their place or their house and they want to run the show. Plus, I really don't want to go and face Judgment Day, especially if it was a while back, depending on your religious beliefs. And uh, be reminded of all the things I did to people because this is the thing you really don't have to kill another being another human being to have done horrible things some people can be very abusive if not physically mentally emotionally to other human beings for a long time and they can be like that with people all around them uh you know what i call they they enjoy the part of being able to victimize other people nothing that they could get arrested for and then it's only if you do the research and sometimes like she said you talk you get the story from other people that were in the periphery in the orbit of who this person was that you realize what they were truly like uh like she was describing about lizzie borden she was pointing stuff out that i was like i didn't know that i didn't know that because like she herself said i always wondered why after she got her money she just didn't sell that house and move off to where she wasn't so notorious and just start her life over whatever it was that she wanted to do but Rebecca pointed out something I didn't know was that she wanted to stick her finger in the eye of the rest of the Borden's family who lived up, uh, who were very wealthy and influential. It was like, I'm going to be the burr under the, your saddle. I'm not going to go away. I'm not going to disappear. You guys are going to have to put up with me and I'm going to be part of you guys no matter what which is that kind of personality and wow and I really love what she was talking about she she could tell she does her research man with a capital R as far as uh, I had never heard that thing about that that she had attempted to what looked like you know to to poison them and that, that didn't work out so she was like okay plan B and uh, that you know and the thing about her being disinherited because of this deal going through, I didn't ever know about that either. And I think to myself, wow, these are, talk about motive, motive, motive. Um, also, because of course, let's face it, the only interpretation that we get of Lizzie Borden is what we see on movies or shows, you know, interpreted by an actress. But none of them have portrayed Lizzie Borden as being a big boned, a guttural voiced, a likable woman 
okay which again points them in <laughs> that she got away with it because at the end of the day despite her being big boned and unlikable she was a woman and that jury of 12 men had a really hard time thinking that she could kill her father and her stepmother much more with a hatchet. Another thing which I thought was great, which is everybody always thinks that the overkill with a hatchet was, oh, you you know, you want to kill somebody that, that you hit them. All those whacks, right? With the axe. Yeah, unless you're, you're establishing an alibi for yourself in the sense of, well, I'm going to make this look like this was a crazed fiend who broke into the house and killed my father and my stepmother. I think it worked. I think those men had a hard time, not only that she could have killed them, that somebody could have killed them the way they were killed. And I think that's what reasonable doubt. Yeah. So anyway, guys, I hope you liked the show. I loved, I loved speaking to Rebecca. I'm looking forward to bringing her back on so she could talk about Salem. I've been to Salem. Again, same thing. There's a lot more to the history of these places than what is seen out there in TV land or Hollywood land. Um, and personally, that's what I like. I like the real history. That I didn't know that thing that she says that Elizabeth Montgomery's statue of Bewitched, uh, it was kind of a little bit controversial. And um, of course, you know, merchants, you got to keep your merchants happy. Um, yeah, I did not know that. So I want to, I want to bring her back and talk about that and about the Versailles. Yeah. That time travel episode. If nobody knows about it, you need to look it up because that's a very well known, uh, and that thing that she said about Marie Antoinette's nose. What? I love it. Okay, guys, please subscribe to my channel, uh, where, wherever it is that you're seeing me, whether it's YouTube or you've got catching me on podcasts on Spreaker, uh, iHeartRadio, iTunes, wherever it is, so that you get notified when I release a new show. Um, you can, I've got a lot of sources. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, I've got links to all the different sources that the podcast appears on, but I also have on there links where you could see the video on YouTube and also listen or download the podcast version if you don't want to go to any of these sources whichever way also my true believers don't forget to send me your stories stories uh i want to hear your stories i love i love hearing people's stories and i know there's lots and lots and lots of them out there some of them are coming out i just released one that's called um, the forgotten pestilence hospital that was an interview i did with a gentleman named rob and he told some fantastic, great true ghost stories of when he was living in Queens, New York. So don't forget about me, true believers. So again, guys, thank you so very, very much for being part of my audience. I think you're all wonderful. And I hope you come back and we keep on um, getting involved and in listening to all these great, fantastic uh, paranormal authors, experts, witnesses, whatever you want to call them. So again, guys, thank you so much. Take care. <laughs>